All right, all right. Mark chapter 12 is where we are today. Continuing our journey through Mark's gospel, we find ourselves in verse number 35, and I'm going to read through verse 44. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse number 35. Now remember uh, where we are here. Jesus, as Mark 35 reminds us, is teaching in the temple. This is the last two or three days of his life. Think on a timeline we could fit these events that we'll read about today on Wednesday. He rode into town on Sunday, looked around, was kind of disgusted at what he saw. He went back to stay with his friends in Bethany, in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Got up Monday, went into town and taught. Stayed with them again, went back in Jerusalem on Tuesday, and that is his pattern. I think we find ourselves now about two or three days away from the cross, and he is again teaching in the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 35 picks up right there. Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. You get the sense here that the common folk were glad to see somebody coming in and putting these arrogant scribes in their place. They enjoyed listening to him. Finally, somebody was speaking about the scriptures with intelligence. Verse number 38. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and chief seats in the synagogues, and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses, and for appearance sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury. Again, he's still in the temple precinct here, okay? He sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had, to live on. Well, probably, as I look around this crowd today, probably only me and Jerry Newman and may a few more remember that antiquated TV show called Truth or Consequences. You remember it, Jerry? Yeah, and the rest of you who do are not going to admit it. Since I called Jerry out, he had to admit it. Yeah, it, it was a popular TV show that aired, it was hosted by Noah, as a matter of fact, right after he landed the ark. <laughs> Jerry and I used to watch Noah host a TV show called Truth or Consequences. And the entire premise of the show was to put people in a pickle. You know, they, they had to either tell the truth or they had to pay the consequences. It was truth or consequences. Well, I want to speak to you today on the subject of truth and consequences because it's not either or in this particular case but it's both and. So what does this passage have here to teach us about truth and the consequences of hearing truth, knowing truth, having truth available to us or as I have said through here being privy to truth. You know it is, it is really a dangerous thing. Hear me. It's a dangerous thing to have truth available to you, but do nothing with it. Let me go a step farther. 
it is a dangerous thing to have truth taught to you and really not live in accordance with that truth. Here's what the Bible says. James says, Brethren, be not many masters, the old King James says. Newer versions translate it, Be not many of you teachers, knowing that you will be held to a stricter judgment. So watch me. The Bible lays it out. The more truth that we have available to us and the more truth to which we are privy, the higher the responsibility, the greater the the, the judgment becomes. We are scrutinized to a greater degree. So it is a dangerous thing. Hear me, BCF students. It's a dangerous thing to hold a Bible degree from the Baptist College of Florida. You understand what I'm saying? Because you are more greatly responsible than those who are not privy to that thing. It is a dangerous thing to hold three seminary degrees and fizzle. Are you with me? But wait a minute. It is a dangerous thing to be a part of a Bible teaching church and fizzle. Because it doesn't matter if you fizzle or not. You're still accountable to what you were privy to. That is the truth. You know, I had rather folk for their sake come to Grace Church and get in. You hear what I'm saying? Then come to Grace Church and just sit on the periphery for a little while and then fall off because you are accountable to a higher degree. You've been exposed to truth. You've been privy to truth. And to do nothing with that truth gives you none of the privileges but all of the responsibility and greater condemnation. Are you with me? Truth and consequences. You'd be better off to come to grace one day and get mad and get out of here than you would be to come and sit around and have all of this truth exposed to you and let it have no impact in your life and you do nothing with it. Because all you did was heap to yourself a higher degree of condemnation. Listen to me. Not everybody in hell receives the same condemnation. Are you with me? Did you see what Jesus said in the latter verse here, one of these latter verses that we read? Look what He said. He gives us a degree in verse 40. These will receive the same condemnation as everybody else. No, no. These will receive greater condemnation. So you see, somebody who grows up in an unreached part of the world where they're not privy to the truth of God's Word, what happens to to them when they die? Well, they go to hell. But you know what? Their condemnation in hell isn't as great as those who were born and raised in Bonifay right down the street from a Bible-preaching church and just did nothing with it. Their condemnation is not as great as somebody who was a part of the church but was never born again. You see what I'm saying? So what does this passage teach us about truth and consequences? Number one, this passage tells us that if you are privy to truth, there will be an examination. There just will be. I had a sticker that used to stay on my refrigerator and here's what it said. It says, have you read my number one bestseller? Because there will be a test, God. And here we see Jesus putting some folk who were privy to truth to the test. He was giving them their midterm examination. And boy, did they ever flunk it. Now look, these folk were very privy to truth. They were more privy to it than than, than most of us ever will be. Because it was their job as scribes to copy meticulously every jot and tittle in the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you've never seen the Hebrew Scriptures, let me just flash a picture of them up there. Uh, can we, Check that out. You see that? Now, that right there is the reason why I wear glasses today. Because trying to pick up all of these jots and tittles for several years in seminary just about destroyed my eyes. 
And this is what the scribes did day in and day out. There were no Xerox machines. There were no printers. They had to copy that stuff. And it's written backwards. It reads from, from, from right to left. And a matter of fact, a little while ago, I, was, I gave this to John to, uh, to make a, take a picture of it. And he said, uh, Psalm 110, well, you got to go farther that way. I said, no, you got to go farther this way. No, that way. No, this way. No, it's written backwards, John. we got to go this way. So we just sat back and laughed and laughed and laughed because it's totally foreign to us. This is what these guys did. Now, how much scripture you think you would know if you had to copy it, if your job was to just write it every day? Man, you ought to have some knowledge. So here Jesus goes. So the exam, hey, listen to me. He didn't test them over uncovered material is what I'm trying to say. Are you with, didn't, you, didn't it bother you when a professor would give you a question over something that you hadn't even heard? Huh? Well, well Jesus doesn't do that. There will be an exam, but listen to me. You've heard it. You've been privy to it, and these guys certainly were. So what did he do? Well, number one, he examined what they acknowledged. Look what he said, and they acknowledged this. This is what they believed. They believed that the Messiah, the Christ, would be the son of David. So he examines them in verse 35. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, Jesus is not questioning that that is true. He's just examining their basis for making that claim when there's also something else here. Because you see, what they believed was only part of the truth. Because Jesus says, how do they say that, that the Christ is David's son when the Spirit says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand. So here's what Jesus was trying to get them to understand. How is it that he can be David's son and David's Lord at the same time? You see, they only picked up half the truth. Look, they were no different from us. They wanted to pick up what was palatable to them what they could understand, what they could live with, and the fact that, that the Christ will be from the lineage of King David. He'll be the son of David in that sense. But he points out here, wait a minute, he's his Lord too. Because David plainly says that in Psalm 110, which is a picture of what we had up here. They only acknowledged half truth. They had incomplete truth. Do you know we do the same thing today? We love to take half of the truth, don't we? Hey, folk today are trying to accept Jesus as Savior, but not obey Him as Lord. And that's only half the truth. So there will be a test. So He examined what it was that they acknowledged. And they only acknowledged half of it. Hey, I'm telling you that Jesus Christ was David's son. But he's not only his son, listen to me, he is his sovereign Lord as well. And you see, you can't have, can't just pick up one and not the other. So son and sovereign. Now here's the dilemma that they were put in. If he's David's son, why did David call him Lord? Can you imagine ever calling your son Lord? I mean, would you do that? I mean, I'd like to see Cliff Myers call his son Clifford Lord. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Hey, Richie Allen's not going to call one of his sons Lord. And the only way I'm going to call one of my sons Lord is if, is if he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And I've got a good idea he wasn't. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so... A father is not going to call his son Lord unless something supernatural is taking place. So Jesus is examining these old boys. How do they call him son? So he's examining what they acknowledge. But check this out. Not only does he examine the knowledge you have in your head, he acknowledges or he examines what you do with it in your heart. Because here's the second thing he did. Not only did he examine what they acknowledge, but he examined what they applied. What they applied. This was a question that was so easy. This was a high hanger over the outside of the plate. This one was destined, ladies and gentlemen, for the cheap seats for anybody who'd been paying attention to what Jesus had been saying and doing for the past two days. Now check this out. Notice, Jesus puts them in this predicament. Is he David's son 
Or is he David's Lord? Do you see that? Is he David's son? Or is he David's Lord? Now I'm fixing to examine you. I'm fixing to examine you. Because what was it that, that the scribes and the, 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 the Herodians did to him just a few weeks ago? Look with me in Mark chapter 12 verse number 15. Shall we pay? I'm, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 12 verse number 15. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he knowing their hypocrisy said to them, Why are you testing me? Do you see what they did? How many of you remember that sermon I preached several weeks ago when I said, When you are given an either or predicament, you ought to do something with that either or. What did Jesus do with that either or predicament? He turned it into both and. So they sat right there and watched him do this. And now he puts one right back to them to see if they've been learning anything. And they sit there and they look at him like a calf looking at a new gate. Like they've never even seen this before. You see what he was doing is he was testing to see if they had been paying attention in class. All they had to do was say just like you did. It's not David's son or his Lord. He is both David's son and his Lord. It's exactly what Jesus did. He turned an either or into a both and proposition. But those dummies were sitting there and they hadn't applied anything that he said. And you see, that is the purpose of what we do on Sunday morning. We're not, we don't come to church just to have our heads filled with facts with knowledge. But we come and want to take that knowledge from our head to our heart so that it transforms us when we apply it to our lives. And this was two days ago when Jesus was simply testing to see how they applied what they had seen Him do. It's amazing to me. And you know it's the same way with us today. A lot of stuff goes on. There's a lot of folk today who are intellectual giants with knowledge, but they're spiritual dwarfs because they haven't applied it. And Jesus is testing to see how they were doing. You see, here's what a lesson will do for you. A lesson will expand your head. And you can get that. You can learn the what's of life from a lesson. But you can only learn the hows of a life, that's application, from watching somebody do it. And you see, Jesus didn't just teach them, He modeled for them. And He modeled how to handle this question. And they should have immediately went there. It's not either or, it's both and, just like He did. How do you learn how to do stuff? By watching the Master. And get this. I heard somebody say the other day, and man, it's so true. We do ourselves a huge disservice when we are in the presence of greatness and we don't pick anything up from them. I'm talking about just folk whom we hang out with. You can bet your bottom dollar that if I hang out with Cliff Myers, John Wilson, for a day, I'm going to pick something up. You know why? Because I'm learning from those guys and I observe from those guys. And that's how you learn the hows. Listen, I went to one of the, at the time, one of the best teaching seminaries has the largest theological library anywhere on the planet. I went there. But listen to me, I went there because there were men whom I just didn't want to learn facts from. I wanted to watch them and see how they did this stuff. Because you can learn facts from a lesson, from a book, but you can only learn how. You can learn what from a book, but you can only learn how from watching a master do it. And can I just say, let me go ahead and paint myself in a corner this morning. Online education is for the birds. Say that again, Colin. If, if, if you want to do a seminary degree online, you are cheating yourself. Because here's how you really learn. It's by walking with those men, those professors, those doctors of theology at Southern Seminary or at, or at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary or somewhere like that. You can't do that through a computer screen. 
So if you want to prepare yourself for ministry, you got to get under somebody who's a master so you can see how they apply it so that we can apply it. That's the way you do it. And here they were. They've, been, they've had Jesus, King Jesus in their presence and they hadn't picked up a thing. And you know, here, here's, what, here's what it is. Here's what we're trying to do at Grace Church. We want to come and, and we want to preach God's Word. But only you can apply God's Word. Did you know that? It's not good enough just to come and sit and hear it and have your head swollen. We've got to get it into our heart and apply it. And here's, here's a thought that I had. and th- th- Colin, this might be the tweet of the week right here. If I say anything that's tweet worthy, here it is. Write this down. Life is little more than a laboratory in which you live out God's Word. Now let me repeat it and I'm going to put a couple extra words in there. Life is little more than a laboratory in which the believer proves, tests, tries out God's Word. So you know what that means? That means we take what we are exposed to and privy to on Sunday and on Monday when we have an opportunity to put it in practice, we put it in practice because here's what I'm telling you. If you hear it on Sunday, watch me. If you hear it on Sunday, you're going to have an examination this week. Are you with me? Hey, it's no coincidence that some of you are going to face things this week that correspond directly to what you heard in church Sunday. And you know what that is? That's the Lord saying, all right, let's see what you're going to do. And guess what? After a while, after He examines you and you don't do anything, guess what He does? He quits speaking. Because He's not interested in just making you some intellectual giant and you being a spiritual dwarf and not putting it into practice. You know, it's kind of like language learning. Here's what you do in language learning. Dana, tell you, anybody's had to learn another language? You cram your head full of grammar and vocabulary and, 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 and sentence structure and all of that stuff until you feel like your head's going to explode. You literally can't fit anything else in there. And you just walk away. You say, I'm done. And then you go out into the marketplaces and into the streets. You interact with people. And you begin to apply all of that. And then all of a sudden it clicks. And you come back to the table next week and you fill your head again. Do you think it's going to explode? And then you have to go out and you talk and you use it in conversation and in life. And then guess what? You have more room in your head. But if all you've got is facts in your head and you've never used them, you don't have room for anything else in there. You've got to take it out of the shelf of your head and put it into, the, into your heart. And then it's like God says, okay, now let's do that with some more. Hey, you ever got to the point where you feel like God wasn't saying anything to you? Maybe because you had not done anything with what He already said. Because you can be here today and not hear a thing from the Lord. You know what I mean? Because it's the Spirit of God who takes the logos and makes it rhema. Notice what else the Bible says i got to run. Hey, if you are privy to truth, there will be an examination. He examined what they acknowledged, but he examined what they applied. He had just demonstrated, just modeled this for them. And they can't even do it. They can't even, and that's, man, that's what discipleship is. It's life on life. It's mentor and mentee. It's watching somebody do it. Hey, for everybody who watches us online and thinks that you can be spiritual by just watching online, I want to say that that's a lie from the pit of hell. Because it's not just good enough to hear. You've got to watch somebody live it out. And that's what the community of faith is for. I watch you live it out and I learn from you. Notice, number next, if you're privy to truth, not only will there be an examination, but if you're privy to truth, there will be great affirmations. Great affirmations. Now, I noticed after I got started preaching this morning that my left hand is a little bit light. I don't have a watch. So somebody raise your hand when it gets to be about 1.30, all right? So I know it's time to stop. All right, here we go. 
If you're privy to truth, there will be great affirmations. Check out the affirmations that this passage of Scripture gives us. This Scripture, number one, affirms the inspiration of Scriptures. The inspiration of Scriptures. Notice what it is that... Oh, by the way, you know I told Tony the other day his PhD dissertation topic is how Jesus read the Old Testament... Look, we get something else here, and another clue into how Jesus read God's Word. Look what he says here in verse number 36. David himself said in the Holy Spirit. What is that? Friends, that's the Spirit of God inspiring David, the man of God, to write the infallible Word of God. So what did Jesus think about the Old Testament text? i tell you what he thought. He thought they were inspired by the Holy Scripture, therefore the authoritative Word of Almighty God. That's what he thought. He didn't question. He didn't debate. He didn't criticize. He said, David himself said in the Holy Spirit. And can I say to you, that's what we have here. Look here, if Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture... Can I say to you how foolish it is for me not to? That's why I preach it the way I do. Because this is a supernatural book. Just the fact that it's existed as long as it has with all the attempts to eradicate it from the face of the earth tells me that God's got interest in this book because it is His special revelation from Almighty God to sinful man showing us how to get from where we are to where He is. God's Word and man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word proceeds out of the mouth of God. All Scripture, Paul tells us, is God-breathed. So isn't it cool when you read the Scripture and you see these types of affirmations in it? That's what happens when you dig in truth. So here's some great doctrinal affirmations. Number one, the inspiration of Scripture. Of Scripture. And again, what is Scripture? And I've told you and told you. It's the 66 books contained between the maps within our Bibles. It's what it is. Nothing else, if anyone adds to this, nothing less, if anyone takes away. This is, thus saith the Lord, inspired by the Spirit of God. And it's profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It is the only way that you will ever have faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The inspired Word of God. It is the only way people will be born again. Why? Because without a preacher, how shall they hear and how shall they be saved without God's Word. I'm telling you, I don't understand everything about how God saves somebody, but I do know this. He always uses the agency of His Word. That's what He uses. Number next, not only does this passage, not, not only does this, this, this passage affirm the inspiration of Scripture, but check something else out. It gives us a conversation among the Trinity. My goodness, look at this. I mean, I think I first need to talk a little bit about the Trinity. What is the Trinity? Well, the Trinity is God. And nobody can explain it. I don't know how to, but can I say that it is the universal affirmation of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that our God is one, but yet He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That blows my mind. But I want a God who does that. I don't want a God that I can explain. Because if I can explain Him, He's no bigger than I am. I want a God who pushes my mind out into those zones where it just causes me to swoon for a minute and say, Dear God, I can't get my mind around this. And that's how great our God is. A man by the name of R.E.O. White gave me more insight into the Trinity than probably I can ingest in my entire life. He wrote a, a monograph on it. But here's what R.E.O. White says. He says, the what is God. You may want to not get these confused. The what is God. The who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see that? What is God? Who is God in three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So yes, the three are one. One theologian said it like this, three is one, one are three. It's bad grammar, but it's good theology. It's the only way to explain it. Thank you, Jacinto, for getting that. <laughs> all right, a conversation. Now check this out. So here we have the Trinity, all right? We have co-equal members of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They are co-equal, co-existent eternally. There's never been a time when these three were not. The what? God. The who? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There are some things that only they know. There are some times when the Godhead retreats and has a conversation only amongst themselves. It's known as the eternal counsel of the triune God. Good God in heaven. How would you like to be a fly on the wall in the throne room of heaven when they go into closed door session? Huh? Stop and think about that for a minute. What do the Father and the Son and the Spirit discuss in holy eternal counsel? There are things within that meeting that have been worked out that we will never understand. Things like God's sovereign control over everything, but yet His command for us to pray to Him like it all depends on our prayers. Things like the predeterminate foreknowledge of God and yet your responsibility and free will and how all that goes together, man, only that is worked out in the eternal counsel of the triune God when they're talking with themselves. See, that's why God doesn't need anybody. You know, this whole idea that God created man for fellowship, like if he was sitting up there lonely. He has perfect fellowship. Perfect fellowship. You know, if I had perfect fellowship, I'd probably want it to be a closed group right there. Whoop! That's it. It's us four and no more. <laughs> Somebody else surely going to mess it up, Jerry. Huh? Here they have perfect communion, perfect fellowship, perfect knowledge, and yet they want to have a relationship with us. Wow, blows my mind. Check out this conversation because here's one of those conversations that we see. A conversation among the Trinity. Boy, that just blows my mind. But look what it is. Here's the conversation. The Lord said to my Lord... <laughs> Here we go. They're talking to one another. Woo! It's a conversation. And somehow or another, the Spirit of God gave David insight into one of these meetings of the triune God in eternal counsel behind closed doors in the throne room of heaven. David said, because the Spirit inspired David. Because the Spirit was there. He said, Leonard, David, I was there. Yahweh, God the Father, said to Jesus, God the Son, sit here at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. My goodness, there's some great affirmations when you're privy to truth. Number one, the inspiration of Scripture. Number two, conversation among the Trinity. Number three, the exaltation of Christ. Look what he said. He said, sit here. Check this out. Sit here at my right hand. Woo! Son, that's exalted. You hear me? That's exaltation. Read the Christ hymn of Philippians chapter 2. Because He did all of that, God the Father has highly exalted Him and given Him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Son, I want to tell you, we don't have no pity vassal regional king We've got King Jesus who is highly exalted. As someone has said and said so eloquently, the empty tomb means the throne is occupied, boys and girls. And we don't have to worry about it because He's firmly in control at the right hand of God the Father. So not only does this affirm the exaltation of Christ, and get this, man, all of this is happening 
a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Tell me the Old Testament scriptures. Don't preach. Christ, number next, not only inspiration of scripture, a conversation among the Trinity, exaltation of Christ, but the humiliation of His enemies. Look at this. Sit here at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. King James says, till I make your enemies a footstool. Hey, did any of you watch WWE? <laughs> you know what the ultimate humiliation is for a wrestler? <laughs> After he's had a folding chair <laughs> cracked across his noggin. <laughs> the next thing is, that guy with the folding chair get up there and he'll put his foot up on his chest. You see what I'm saying? And that's what the Bible's saying here. That's what's going to happen to the enemies of Christ. They're going to be a footstool. <laughs> that's humiliation. No matter how smart you think you are, no matter how powerful you think you are, no matter how much money you've got, no matter how good your excuse was, if you've never been born again, listen, you're on the wrong team. And one day there's going to be ultimate humiliation. Not if, but Yahweh said in conversation among the Trinity, in holy closed-door counsel of the triune God, God the Father said to God the Son, sit here until... I make your enemies your footstool. Hey guys, we're on the winning team. Did you know that? <laughs> I feel sorry for those who are not because that's going to be ultimate humiliation to be under the foot of a God whom you fought and denied and ridiculed and mocked your entire life. Check it out. If you're privy to truth, there will be an examination. If you're privy to truth, there will be great affirmations. And then finally, I don't even know what time it is. It's not 1.30 because nobody's raised their hand. If you are privy to truth, there will be, number one, condemnation. Check it out again. These guys were pretty privy to truth. They were writing it every day. Look what Jesus said. These will receive greater condemnation. Why? They acknowledge half the truth. They applied none of the truth. There will be condemnation. Or, if you're privy to truth, there will be commendation. Now, here's what I think is going on here. I think the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture, the same Holy Spirit who inspired David inspires Mark to put these stories together. And you see verses 41 through 44 are the story of a little insignificant broke widow woman. And verses 38 through 40 is a story of the most powerful, rich, wealthy, affluent men in Judaism. And I think the Spirit inspires David to put them side by side for the purpose of a contrast. So here we go. Let's look at this contrast. Can you guess which ones were privy to truth and were condemned? Which one who was privy to truth and was commended? It's obvious. Notice what it is that the Bible says. Look at the scribes. What were they doing? And here's what Jesus says. He says, beware of the scribes. And then he gives you seven reasons. I've combined some of them into one. But he gives seven reasons why to beware of the scribes. And in doing so, gives us seven reasons why not to emulate those vipers. It's amazing to me. You know, I talked a little while ago, and this is, this is a head-scratcher for me. It's a head-scratcher. I said that you learn how from being around people who know how. That's application. That's how you learn how to do stuff. You know, and I, I'm not bragging. I, I'm not, you know, because I'm an idiot. I, I really am. But I've got an earned doctorate in preaching. But son, I didn't learn how to preach from a homiletics classroom in seminary. If that's all I would have had, I would not be able to do this. You know how I learned how to do it? By sitting under men and walking with men who are some of the greatest pulpiteers in our, in our nation today. That's how I learned, by walking with them. 
It is a crime. You do yourself a disservice if you are in the presence of greatness and you don't pick up anything from them. Pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. So here's my question. How is it that we can be in the presence of thugs? Watch me. You can be in the presence of buzzards and you'll pick it up naturally. You just go ahead and start hanging out with the buzzards and the thugs and I'll be able to tell by the way you talk because you'll pick it up naturally. Isn't that the truth? But we can be in the presence of greatness and it not affect us one bit. How is that? Because one you pick up naturally. The other you pick up supernaturally. You hear me? You've got to be wanting to. You've got to ask God to help you with this. God, help me pick this up. So look, if, if, if we don't beware these, these scribes whom Jesus called vipers, watch me, we'll end up being just like them. Automatically, by default, that's your default setting. My default setting is to be a scribe. But my supernatural setting is to be like Jesus. He gave us an example. Why did the thugs impact us more than the Son of God? And again, it's a head scratcher for me. But nonetheless, notice, we don't want to be like those guys. So how were they? Well, let's do a comparison. Those scribes love to be seen by men. Look what Jesus said. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. The word that he uses there gives us the indication that those robes were so ornate and colorful and long and flowing until it was almost like a peacock walking into the room. You ever know anybody, they just have an innate desire to be seen? You ever know people like that? I mean, you can see it in some folk. They just have to be seen. They can't just come in and be nonchalant and just be a fly on the wall. They've got to be seen. And here were these guys. They wanted to be seen by men. That was the entire purpose for all of this. They wanted to attract attention. They wanted men to see them and know them. But look at this little widow woman on the other hand. While the scribes loved to be seen by men, this little widow woman was seen by Christ. Whoo! Here's what it boils down to. Who are you performing for? Do you want to be seen by men? Or are you doing what you do for an audience of one, and that is Jesus Christ, the Sovereign of David, the Son of God? I want to tell you I'd rather be seen and noticed by Him than I had be on a world platform in front of millions of people. Who are you performing for? Who do you want to be seen by? Well, the scribes, the ones who were condemned, by the way, who received greater condemnation, they wanted to be seen by men. Number next, look what else the Bible says about these scribes. They like respectful greetings in the marketplace. Oh, when you saw them, you had to pile on the accolades. You had to flatter them. And that's what they love. They love to be flattered by men. But this little poor widow woman, she wasn't flattered by men. Nobody paid any attention to her. But son, she was praised by Christ. Christ stopped the whole show. He said, boys, come here. Come here, let me show y'all something. This woman has put in more than all of those contributors. He's not talking about just one guy who came up and dumped in $10,000. He's talking about everybody who had cumulatively put in all of that money. Jesus says this is more valuable than everything they put in there. Two copper coins. Wasn't worth a cent. Yee! And Christ stopped the entire parade and says, Look at this, boys. He commended, he praised this woman. She has put in more than all of them. Hey, and get this, get this. I want you to see this in this scripture. It really isn't what you give, but it's how you give. Look at what the scripture says. Notice what Jesus was doing. He sat down opposite the treasure and began observing what the people put in the offering plate. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't. What does it say? He was observing how. How the people gave. And look, here's the thing. Everybody else gave out of their surplus. You know what they said? Here's, here was their philosophy of giving. 
how much will I have left after I give? And I'll give up to that point, whatever that number is I want to keep in reserve. Here's what she gets. Here was her philosophy of giving. How much can I give? And the Bible says she gave everything that she had. Someone has said, we're not condemned by how much we give. We're condemned by how much we have left after we give. And this woman was praised by Christ. A little old widow woman. Don't you just get the sense that when you get to heaven there's going to be a great turnaround? The folk who we think are going to receive the accolades are probably going to be in the back of the line. And it's people whom we never paid attention to here who are going to be the closest to the throne. And that's what happened here. A little widow woman superseded everything that these guys who were privy to truth all their life every day had. Notice number next. They love to be distinguished by men. How are they distinguished? Well, look what the Bible says. They like the chief seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. In other words, they wanted to be distinguished from everybody else. All of you commoners, y'all sit out there. We're going to sit up here on the platform. We're going to take the elevated place where we can just look out down our long bony noses and pontificate over you commoners. They love to be distinguished and separated from everybody else. But check out this woman. This woman was pointed out by Christ. You talk about distinction. Woo! Son, it wasn't that she received the place of honor in synagogue. She wasn't honored by men. She was pointed out by Christ. Out of everybody there, she was the one who was distinguished. She was the one who was pointed out. See, there's a great difference and contrast in these two groups of people. Number next, these scribes, look what the Bible says about them. Uh, let's skip over one and get down to, for appearance sake, they offer long prayers. Why? For appearance sake, because they love to be heard. You ever heard somebody talk and you're convinced the only reason they're talking is because they love to hear themselves talk? <laughs> that was these old boys. And they did it for appearance sake. They wanted to look spiritual. So son, when they prayed, they would put on all the high sounding words. They would use their best King James language. And you would think, my gosh. I'll never forget Fred Wolf, who just died of COVID, one of my heroes and preaching mentors, Dr. Fred Wolf, pastored Cottage Hill Baptist Church in Mobile for years. He said, I was in a prayer meeting one night with Miss Bertha Smith. If you don't know her, she was one of the greatest female missionary personalities of the last century. Spiritual giant. Equivalent, you know, to Lottie Moon, folk like that. And he said, we were in the pastor's office praying before a meeting and there was me, three other pastors, and Miss Bertha Smith. And we all got down on our knees and we were going to pray before the worship service. And this one pastor started praying. And Dr. Fred said... Miss Bertha, in the middle of his prayer, stood up and said, Son, stop that. You're praying in the flesh. You just want to sound good. And stop that. And you pray in the Spirit and you be sincere. Dr. Fred said, One thing I knew for sure after that, I wasn't praying out loud at all. <laughs> he said, But you know what? She was right. He said, This old boy was, he said, He offered the best prayer ever offered to men. Did you hear me? He gave the best prayer ever offered to men's ears. You know, there's something about hearing a new convert pray, isn't it? Hey, you don't have to pray like the Apostle Paul to be an effective prayer. No, you don't. You just have to be sincere. And I love it. Man, I love it. I love it when Dr. John has some of our newest converts come up here and pray the offertory prayer because you can just sense a childlike sincerity and faith there that just rattles the doors of heaven. I had a preacher, a pastor friend the other day call me on the phone and you know what he asked me? He didn't say, now I'm worried about your exegesis at this particular point. Explain to me your hermeneutic as you try to... Uh, uh, as you try to set in contradistinction, verse 7, with the syntactical construction of verse... He didn't say that. You know what he said? 
He sent me a text and said, Hey, who was that guy that prayed the off-tour prayer? <laughs> and I told him his name. I said, Why do you ask? He said, Because, man, when that guy prayed the offertory prayer, I just sensed the Spirit of God through my computer screen. <laughs> These guys didn't do that. They wanted to be heard. They wanted to impress men with their prayer. And like Miss Bertha Smith said, don't do that. Quit that. <laughs> Just stop it. <laughs> Just talk to God. Huh? Notice, these, these men love to be heard by men, but this lady was heard by God. Did you hear what the Scripture said? You don't do what she does without abiding. The passage that Colin read this morning... Abide in me and my words in you. And then this is what he said. Ask whatever you will and it'll be done for you. Do you see that? Abiding. Having the Word of God in your head and in your heart and applying it when you go out here. You know what that does? That gives you power in prayer. Causes your voice to be heard on high. And I'm sure this little old lady was heard, son. Number next, and i got to close. Check out the group that was condemned. They loved financial gain. Look what who devour, Jesus said they devour widows' houses. You know what the scribes are also responsible for? They wrote out wills in that time. So they had looked and found a, a woman who had no more descendants. Her husband had died. And they would go over and offer a long prayer and try to give her the appearance they were spiritual and say, Now look, you need to leave everything you got here to the temple treasury. And the reason they did that is because they had access to it. They loved sordid financial gain. But look on the other hand at this woman. The scribes love financial gain, but this woman was provided for by God. Now let me ask you this question. Look what the Bible says. This woman came and she gave all she had. And in case you didn't get it, there's a comma there and Jesus further explained. She gave all that she had to live on. Now let me ask you a question. Jesus saw her do that uses her as a lesson for her disciples, pointed her out, distinguished her. She was seen by Christ. Do you think for one minute that she went home that night and was hungry? I'm telling you, God will move heaven and earth to make sure that the needs of His people who walk with Him in obedience are taken care of. You see, Paul said to this to a poor Philippian church who had given about all they had to his a missionary ministry of taking the gospel to unreached people. Paul says this, and too many people who aren't doing that claim this promise, but only the Philippians and only those who are doing this can claim Philippians 4, 19 and 20. And my God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. You know why? You know why she was provided for? She saw God supernaturally feed her because she gave her lunch money away. Are you following me? You want to get into that supernatural zone where you see God do something in response to your faith? Give your lunch money away. I'll never forget when, when I was pastoring Hilliard, Florida. Our building fell down around us. That's the only reason we built one. It just fell. It just collapsed around. We, we were going to be meeting in the yard or we had to build something. And here's what I did. I challenged our people. I said, let me tell you what to do. You skip one meal a week, and there's $12.50 a week right there you can put in the building fund. You skip one meal and see what happens, and you give that money to God. And so we had a testimony day of how when folks were going to skip a meal this week so they could give that money in order for us to build a house to worship in, how God met their needs. Because they literally gave their lunch money to the Lord. He does that. It's supernatural. And let me tell you what that did to their faith. And would you listen to them? God doesn't need your money, but you need to see what God does to build your faith in response to what you do with your money. Huh? About, I don't know, a couple years ago, Link Up Missions was about ready to... We had already appointed a family of four to go to Brazil. Mom and dad and two children. And they were in the process of mobilization. And here's what our board of directors said. They said, we are not going to send them until we know that they're safe. 
Because here's, here's what you do. You send a white American gringo family into a crime-ridden Brazilian city and they speak not a word of Portuguese, know nothing about culture, you might as well hang a sign on them that says, I'm a dummy, rob me. So we knew we couldn't send them unless we could be almost certain that we could guarantee their safety. So we began to look. We knew we just couldn't put them anywhere. We had to get these folk in a gated apartment complex in a major city in the northeast of Brazil. That's the only way we could guarantee their safety because a gated community down there isn't like a gated community down here. It's where the elite live. It's where the people who don't want to die live. Huh? So we began to look and think, there's no way we can do this. And all of a sudden, one of my contacts in Brazil contacts me and he says, Pastor, I've got just the place. All right, beautiful. How much is it? Well, I'll give you a deal on it. I'll let you have it for $8,000 a year. Well, the only problem is $8,000. So I called my chairman, uh, my, the board of, uh, my chairman of the board of directors and said, Hey, God's answered our prayer. We've got a gated apartment complex ready to put this family afore so they can be safe while they learn language and culture and so their children can be safe. The only problem is they need $8,000 up front, up front today. What do we do? Here's what he said. He said, call the financial secretary. Tell her to put everything we've got, if that's what it takes, into his account so we can have that place. Did it. That was on a Saturday. Monday night, excuse me, Sunday night, I'm laying in my bed. It's 9 o'clock. My phone's on my nightstand. Now, those of you who know me know don't call me at 9 o'clock. Why, Colin? I've been asleep for two hours already by then. <laughs> but I'm sitting there awake for some reason. My phone rings. Another thing, if I look over and I don't recognize a number at 9 o'clock on a Sunday night, guess what? It's going to voicemail. Huh? Because my mind's cooked on Sunday. But I looked over and I saw it was a local number. And I did something I never do. I thought, you know, and I just think I was prompted by the Spirit. I reached over and I answered the phone. There was a guy on the other end. He said, Pastor Richie, this is so-and-so. I hope I haven't called you too late. Oh, no, too late? No, I was just reading Lamentations in Hebrew. I got another... <laughs> I'll be up praying for two hours. What do you mean too late? <laughs> so anyway, I said, he said, look... I, couldn't, I could not go another night without calling you because the Spirit of God has been prompting me for the last two days to contact you. I said, hmm, that sounds pretty serious. What's going on? He said, well, here's the thing. He said, you know, my contracting company, we finished a big job six months ago, and the company for which we did this job, they're in the process of going bankrupt. And he said, I just knew we were done. He said, we were already lawyering up, trying to recover what we could, but he said, I just knew we was going to get a fraction of our money back. He said, Friday, I got a check in the mail for the entire amount. He said, God has put you and your mission organization on my heart. Do you have any needs? I said, well, yeah, we do. I said, how much money were you thinking of, of giving? <laughs> he said, well, I'm going to start with $4,000. I said, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, God. Went to sleep, there's 4,000 of the 8,000 that we just sent. The next morning, Monday morning, another businessman, a friend of mine in Jacksonville, Florida, calls me on the phone. He said, hey, Doc, something crazy just happened to me. I said, what was it? He said, I just got a contract with Florida Power and Light that's crazy money. It's so crazy, I didn't think it was true when they were offered it to me. He said, but we just got this contract, and this is what we got to do. And he said, I just want to know, is there any way I can put some of this money to good use on the front lines? I said, well, about how much you want to put, in, put, in, put on the front lines? He said, I want to start with $4,000. In two days, the good God of heaven returned the lunch money to a mission organization who just by faith put it all where God said to put it. I almost called Dr. John Wilson yesterday and said, Doc, let's do the offering at the end of the service. 
Because there's some of us today that need to come back and put our lunch money. Not because Grace Church or God needs our lunch money, but because you need to see God do something supernatural in your life this week. And this is the only area in which God in all the Scripture gives us the right to test Him. Here's what He said in Malachi. He said, test me and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour out on you a blessing that you can't even receive. And I want to tell you, that's worth more than anything that you have in your pocket. Hey, when you're privy to truth, there are consequences. Sometimes it condemns us. Sometimes it commends us. In Jesus' name, may we be commended this week for taking God's Word and living it out in the laboratory of life in Bonifay, Florida for the glory of the Son of David and the Sovereign of David. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your Word.